Uh, it's the end of the day. I'm sure you're feeling completely exhausted. Um, and I hope I can kind of keep you mindful and awake. I'm Will Vanderhart. I'm pastoral chaplain at Holy Trinity Brompton. Uh, as Roger kindly said, uh, I've been uh, involved in this work since 2005. I'm sure I've learned a lot more from Roger than I have, uh, than he has from me, but he's been very kind to me tonight. I want to be kind to the book guy as well, who brought his books here today by, by proffering some books, not just by me and Kate, but by the whole uh, team. Please um, lighten their load as they, uh, as they leave for the day and make them feel mindfully happy and content, and uh, that would be a great way forward. When I um, took over my first church uh, in, uh, in Harrow, in northwest London, it was a kind of great ship of a place, um, typical Anglican church, not, not a bit smaller than this, but not dissimilar. And um, when I arrived, if you're an Anglican here, you'll know what I mean by Anglican damp. I kind of walked in, and there's this incredible like, home brand version of an Anglican smell. It's, a, it, it's hard to describe, but you can go into churches around the world, and they will have the same brand of Anglican damp. It's an amazing thing. Uh, I remember just walking in, and just, it was just a light with Anglican damp. And as well as that, on, on all, all the windowsills were old um, silk flower arrangements with a sort of a thick inch and a half of dust lying on top. Uh, little like kind of marshmallows had been laid out for my arrival. And, uh, you know, there was, there was just sky junk everywhere, stuff hanging everywhere. And I remember coming in and, and thinking, oh, wow, this, this place needs a little bit of work. But the smell is the big problem for me. So I, I took all the leaders away for a bit of blue sky thinking to see what the Lord might be saying about the transformation of the church. And every single group that went off to pray came back with toilets as the top thing <laughs> they believed the Lord was saying we should change. After that was the smell. And below that were more spiritual things. And so I set to work trying to, if you like, to undo, to, to undo this uh, experience of Anglican damp. And uh, we began by clearing away all the junk, and we did put in brand new loos. But six months after uh, we'd done that project, I remember coming to my office, sitting down and still feeling like, oh, really? Is it still smelling that bad? And uh, a, few, a few weeks later, I went for a little walk around the building. And in our building, there was a kind of medical practice over this side of the building. And, and as I was walking around, a bit like Alice in Wonderland, I found a little blue door in the back side of the building that I hadn't noticed before. So I said to the maintenance guy, I'd like to go in there today. And he was just sucking his teeth, going, no one's been in there for years. And I remember thinking, that is exactly why I want to go in there today. And you know, I had to remind him that I was actually the vicar, and I was supposed to now have the keys to the church. And uh, so a little bit of argument and, uh, and, and, and resistance later, he did reappear with a set of keys. And, and armed with a stick in one hand and my camera phone in the other, I was like Indiana Jones, uh, trying to wrestle my way in through this low door. And there was sort of you know, cobwebs everywhere. And as I battled my way in, I, I, I very quickly looked down and realized what the problem was. Actually, there was, there was brassy water just lapping at the third step in through this door. And I said to him, well, well, you know, he's like, oh. I said, how deep is it? He said, it's deep. <laughs> it turns out it was actually incredibly deep. There were two massive rooms underneath the church, two great big basement rooms. Uh, and they were more than seven feet high themselves, but you had to go down about 17 steps to get to them. And, and, and a local stream had been feeding underneath the church for a number of years. The scout equipment from 1902 was still in there, rusting away. It was like a scene from the Titanic. And I called the local fire brigade and I said, oh, hello, I'm the new vicar. My church has flooded. I, I didn't tell them it had flooded in 1937. I just said <laughs> it was flooded. So... Uh, 
fire brigade turned up and they uh, stuck some big, big hoses down in, in, into, this, uh, into this basement. They began pumping. It took seven hours. They reckoned that they'd removed about 3,000 gallons of rotten, brassy water. Finally, we realized what the problem was uh, with the smell of Anglican damp. It was unusually potent because the foundations were unusually flooded. Augustine said, lay first the foundations of humility. The higher your structure is to be, the deeper must be its foundation." You see, the thing is, for many of us in life, our basement is flooded with shame. And as hard as we try, we can't get away from this weird stench that we're not quite up to scratch. We're not quite good enough. It doesn't matter how immaculate we make the top half of the building. It doesn't matter how many new toilet projects we run, how much sky junk we remove, how many silk flowers we dust down. At the end of the day, however hard we work, it's still just not quite good enough. Just this light touch, this little smell of you're not quite up to scratch, just chases us around. And our temptation is to build higher and higher to get away from the smell. And the higher we get, the more unstable we become. And then we begin to experience what we call leadership vertigo, where we feel actually like I'm up here and there's no real reason I should be up here. In fact, the reverse is true. You know what we did? We, we pumped out that basement, and then we hired a couple of massive skips, and then we cleared out all the junk, and then a guy said to me one day, he said, oh, my wife's really fed up with me pumping iron in our living room at home. Have you got anywhere? I thought, oh, mate, I've got just the place. <laughs> so uh, we installed a pump to keep it dry, and we put in some heaters and some lighting. The next thing I know, here's this guy every morning at 6 a.m. pumping iron under the church. I thought, this is what we need. We need to drain the shame basement and we need to replace it with an integrity gym. Because ultimately, underneath the ministry or the leadership that we're exacting, there needs to be the strength of integrity. We have to be mindful of this, who we're created to be. Living not in fear, not running away from who we are, but living towards who God's created us to be in His image. The thing about shame is, it's such a difficult emotion to identify. I mean, I can do happy, and I can do angry, and I can do sad, but I can't do shame. Oh, I shame today. Oh, really? That's a bit odd. You shame? I shame? We shame? How do you shame? The thing about shame is, shame is problematic because it's not an emotion, it's an affect. Uh, Shame affects other things. In the orchestra, this is Simon Rattley, many of you may know, uh, one of the most uh, competent and and glorious conductors uh, in our great country. And uh, I rather like this picture particularly, it reminds me of Gustav Monk's The Scream, maybe. I'm not sure Simon will appreciate that, Uh, but I think it's it's a powerful expression of emotion. Uh, The thing about the orchestra is the most powerful instrument in the orchestra makes no sound. He's carrying it right there. It's a silent stick. It's the baton. It makes the most sound. It controls the whole orchestra. Everything depends on this one silent instrument. And the same is true for your own emotional world. The shame conductor conducts the four basic emotions of your emotional world, as the University of Glasgow convincingly argues. There are actually only four basic emotions, happy, fear, surprise, yes, that's one, anger, disgust, yes, that's another, and sadness. You thought there were six, but there are only four. Um, Let's go through those six slash four again. Happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. Imagine that they are the brass, the woodwind, uh, the strings, and the percussion 
in this great orchestra. When shame is the conductor, they will always make a discordant sound. Moments of great joy will turn to moments of great discomfort. Moments of guilt will turn into moments of anguish. Moments that feel happy will be tinged with moments of darkness. So we have to address the shame conductor in order that the emotional world which we live in and present within us is, is true, is, is redeemed, is authentic, is no longer controlled. We have to change the tone of this particular orchestra, and that's where mindfulness practice will come in. If you're still wondering about how you can identify shame in your life or its impact, I would best describe it as the feeling of fraudulence. Many of you here today are people uh, who are involved in counseling. Many of you are teachers. Many of you are involved in leadership within churches. And you will know full well if you're a counselor that you say things that you do not believe in. (laughs) You sit there giving sage advice that you have not taken yourself. And you smile sweetly and say, oh, yes, I have heard that before, when you have never heard anything like that before. The feeling of fraudulence impacts us when we're bound by shame. It's like I discussed earlier with the idea of leadership vertigo. The higher you get, the more unstable you feel. Um, This feeling of fraudulence changes our feelings. Shame impacts our feelings uh, to a new formulation of I am statements. I am defective, I'm damaged, broken, a mistake, I'm flawed, I'm dirty, I'm soiled, I'm ugly, I'm unclean, I'm impure, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting, I'm incompetent, I'm not good enough, I'm inept, I'm ineffectual, I'm useless, I'm unwanted, I'm unloved, I'm unappreciated, I'm uncherished, I'm weak, small, impotent, puny, feeble, I'm bad, awful, dreadful, evil, despicable, I'm pitiful, contemptible, miserable, insignificant, I'm nothing. I'm worthless, I'm invisible, I'm unnoticed, I'm empty. That's the impact of shame on our emotional world. That's the uh, experience of so many of the people who come to see you for help, but that's also the leader experience. Uh, in in soul, we, we know within my work in, in, in church leadership over the last 15 years, I've, I've counseled a lot of senior leaders who've come to me who everyone thinks are super shiny, super happy, and super authentic. And they've rolled in the door and said, hey, Will, I just want to tell you how I really feel. This is what I've been experiencing since I was 12. And this is what I'm experiencing now. I'm 52 Tell me if there's anything I can do about it. Because right now I feel like I'm just trying to keep the wheel spinning until I can retire, and then I'm just going to go off grid and actually be myself. Such is the power of shame in our lives. Now, I was dealing with shame in my own life, and I received uh, an invitation to a leader's retreat at Windsor Castle. And I remember it wasn't the wedding, which I have not received an invitation for, Um, sadly, although if there's anyone here who has any traction in that area, I'll talk to you afterwards. So I received this invitation, um, and I remember receiving it, and my first feeling was one of joy and hopefully appropriate pride. I thought, wow, this is, this is an honor. I'm so blessed. But within about a quarter of a second, I immediately felt that this wasn't for somebody like me. This isn't for someone like me. This is for better leaders. This is for leaders with greater influence. This is leaders who are more tried and tested. This is for really good leaders, not for leaders who made the sort of mistakes that I've made. I showed it to my wife. She said, oh, wow, finally, they've realized you've got something vaguely useful to say. I said, 
<laughs> oh, well, thanks, darling. That's a great encouragement to me. I told her how I felt in terms of being a bit fraudulent. She told me I should get over myself, and she was probably right. But this feeling of fraudulence just didn't go away. I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't, I couldn't get it off of me. It was like Anglican damp. No matter how hard I tried to get away, the stronger it became and the more it followed me. And so I actually turned up at Windsor Castle two hours before the start of the retreat because I didn't want to be humiliated. So I wanted to make sure I was really invited. It was a slightly strange thing to do, and all the councillors in the room going, wow, you need to see me. Um, so I turned up there, and I, and I sort of tentatively went up to the guard on the, on the gate, and I said, oh, hi there. I know I'm a bit early, but I think I'm involved in this retreat that's running over these next 24 hours. And, uh, and he said, oh, oh, yeah, you are, you are a bit early. And, and I said, well, you know, he said, well, can I, can I have your name? And I said, well, yeah, it's Will Vanderhart. And, and he looked down his list, and obviously I'm a V, so he kind of went through a couple of, couple of lists, and I got a little bit more anxious about that. And then he said, oh, no, you're here. You're on, you're on the list. So I was like, of course I'm on the list. I got an invitation. How can I not be on the list? But part of me was like, oh, this is kind of a surprise. Like, I'm actually on the list. And then I went into Windsor Castle. I'm sort of skipping around, you know, like, here I am. I'm, I, I'm on the list. But even then, the feeling of Anglican damp was still following me around and saying, well, you know what, you're not really, you know, you just kind of got in, but, but, you know, they didn't really know what you're like. And then, amazingly and profoundly, I, I found myself in the first session, and I was still feeling bad, and so I stood at the back, and there was an awful lot of other leaders there that I love and respect and admire. And then the retreat leader, a guy called Pete Gregg, who started the 24-7 prayer movement, he stood at the front, he said, Guys and girls, can I just encourage us to get over ourselves? I was thinking I've heard this before. <laughs> and just say to you all that, um, you know, there's not a single person in this room who doesn't feel like a fraud. I thought, wow, I, I, I thought I had shame problem now, and now I think I'm hallucinating. <laughs> um, but then I looked around, and actually I saw all of these other leaders nodding their heads, leaders that I respected responding to that, that same challenge. I realized that amongst leaders, this was a significant problem. This is a, a significant challenge that we have to address. The feeling of fraudulence is a powerful one. And in our leadership and in our practice, we have to address this if there's going to be a reality, a truth brought into our emotional world. At the heart of all this is, is a piece of psychology that I really like called belongingness theory. I was in education before I became a priest, and I knew a lot about attachment theory. But I always thought attachment theory seemed to start at sort of point B or point C. I was always thinking there must be something before attachment. Like, why do you want to attach? Like, I was sort of working with dysfunctional children thinking, yeah, you shouldn't have attached. You know, your dad's a nightmare. Uh, why did you do that? Why did you attach? Well, you attached actually because of something called belongingness theory. Baumeister and Leary's 1995 study, The Need to Belong, proposed the simplest principle that a need to belong is a fundamental human motivation, that human beings have a pervasive drive to form and maintain a minimum quality of lasting, positive, and significant interpersonal relationships. You were built for connection, for belonging, for relationship. This is why we're here. And they, this drive to belong, this hunger to belong, it, it, it rules us. But it's divine. God created us for belonging. When he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't have to work for entry. They didn't have to provide a pass or an invitation. They were, were immediately masters of their environment. They 
belong in that environment. They were encouraged to, 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 to rule over it. This was a place prepared for them, and God has prepared a place for us. That actually belonging, this value of being, is key to our human flourishing. I was thinking much about the story of Moses in, in all of this and, and his experience of, of non-belonging. If you imagine uh, Moses as a young man sort of having a conversation with his therapist, I imagine it might go something like this. Oh, oh yes, and tell me, so how, how did that feel, Moses? Obviously, your mum placed you in that, in that basket of reeds. Well, well, yes, I mean, it was quite difficult, especially because you know, it was obviously the River Nile, which was filled with crocodiles. Um, yes, that must have been hard. Very, very hard. Yes. Oh, I, I, I have heard that before. Um, yes, and, and it must have been quite difficult then being received by uh, an Egyptian woman who, after all, they were sort of busy killing all of your siblings and peers. Yes, that, that was very complicated, wasn't it? And then, of course, and, and then your mother appeared, of course. That, was, that, was, that, was a one, that must have been a wonderful moment for you. Oh, well, yes, well, that's true. She did deny that she was actually your mother, um, which was, again, must have been quite complex. But she did say she was going to be your nursemaid, which, well, that surely must have improved things. No, oh, okay, no. <laughs> and then, of course, um, well, shall we finish this session? Why, why don't you come back next week, Moses, and we'll talk again? You can kind of imagine how it goes. You know, it was a complex experience for Moses. He had, you know, he had rough foundations as far as belonging was concerned. He, he, was, he was brought up by uh, the, this enemy. Can you imagine kind of his experience of attachment and displacement, his circle of broken security, how, how, he, how he grew, how he lived, and, and the shame basement of, of fraudulence, of being a Hebrew living uh, um, uh, amongst the Egyptians, not really knowing what, what's sort of going on in his own tumultuous world. Uh, at the heart of the psychology of belongingness is something internal which we call the sociometer. And the sociometer is, is the mechanism by which we measure how we estimate our belonging. Leary writes, the psychological system of the sociometer monitors the social environment for cues relevant to one's relational value, the degree to which other people regard their relationship with the individual to be valuable or important. Now, we estimate our belongingness by viewing other people through the sociometer. I can imagine Moses' experience as the prince of Egypt trying to estimate his, his belongingness through his sociometer, regarding himself physically and wondering how he was perceived by others, a traitor to the Hebrews, uh, an outsider to the Egyptians. This sort of great confusion uh, within us. And how we address this great challenge of the sociometer is, is so important in our mindful practice. Here's Moses. We find him uh, at this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And uh, the Lord says to him in 3.10, Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Can you imagine for a young man who's had such a tricky and complex experience of childhood, one where he's constantly been estimating his fraudulence against both his people of origin and his people of nurture, 
how being invited to track back to this place of, uh, of challenge would have been something abhorrent to him, particularly because he believed that there was shame reasons for him to be excluded from their presence. Moses is the classic example of a shame-bound leader. You know, he has a crisis of belongingness. It's interesting, isn't it, that he, he kills the Egyptian slave driver. He places himself into exile with a people to whom he doesn't belong. Now, Moses is the most discombobulated leader in the whole of the Old Testament. He is a Hebrew who's left the Hebrews, who joins the Egyptians, but he's not an Egyptian. Then he thinks, sack it, I know what, I'm going to become a Midianite. That's going to fix everything. <laughs> so here he is, 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, when the Lord appears to him and threatens to send him back to the place of his great humiliation. And he says here in Exodus 4.1, what if they don't believe me? It's an interesting response. Wouldn't you have thought the first thing that Moses would have said was, what if Pharaoh kills me? Because surely that was the thing that he was most afraid of since he'd killed an Egyptian slave driver. But he's not worried about death. He, like us, is worried about humiliation. Now, we live reactively to the fear of being exposed for what we believe we really are. Rather than being mindful of who we actually are, and living with the threat, we seek to exile ourselves against the threat and live amongst people who don't know us and don't love us. And so many leaders exile themselves against the threat of being known and loved, place themselves into all sorts of contexts where nobody knows them, and therefore no one can really love them. I wonder whether we in counseling settings or teaching settings do exactly that, not because we have a, a passion to see change in others so much as we have a passion to hide our true selves from others. And in this uh, moment, the Lord says to him, what is that in your hand? We know the story. Uh, a staff, he replies, and the Lord says, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. There's, Bear Grylls Survival School says there's two ways to deal with a snake. The first one is to run from it. So Moses obviously read that guidebook because he did that straight away. Uh, secondarily, you can actually use a, a, a pronged uh, fork to hold the snake's head still or grab it even behind the head. But if you control the head, you're normally safe. But the Lord says to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, the Lord is speaking here to Moses, who spent 40 years in the desert of Midian protecting sheep. There were bears and there were lions, but more than anything, there were snakes in abundance. You can guarantee, as far as Bear Grylls is concerned, Moses is the extreme snake handler of merit. He's the guy, he's the go-to guy for snake handling. So the Lord is saying something to Moses which is entirely counterintuitive. Pick up the snake by the tail. Have you ever seen that before? Have you ever thought about that? before? Pick it up by the tail. If you pick any animal by the tail, guaranteed it's not going to like it. I tell my kids, don't pull that dog's tail. It's going to bite you. Don't pull an animal by the tail. It hurts them. They don't like it, and they can bite you. Never pick up a snake by the tail. It's going to turn its head, and it's going to launch its fangs straight into your hand. It's not like got antidote there. It's like it's all over, right? Basically, you're going to die, which is the feeling we all have when we believe that we're going to be exposed for who we really are. I'm not really afraid of Pharaoh killing me. I'm just afraid of being humiliated by Pharaoh. I'd rather die. 
People say it all the time, oh, I'd rather die. I wish the earth would eat me up. Because humiliation, the revelation of our shame to others, is the thing that undoes us. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back to a staff in his hand. I believe that this event really happened, so don't misunderstand me. But if we look at it metaphorically, here is shame. The shame that has made Moses run from Egypt. Think about it. The prince of Egypt could kill a slave driver since a slave driver was a slave. So if the prince of Egypt goes back to Pharaoh and says, hey, I was disrespected by a slave driver today, so I beat him to death, Pharaoh's not going to say, oh, well, now I'm going to kill you, my son. He's going to say, well, they're only slaves. Like, why would Moses run away? Why would he run away unless he felt ashamed? He exiled himself. So here, he's invited, if you like, to pick up the snake of shame by the tail, to hold it mindfully, lest it bites him. We all try and deal with our shame through control. We want to pick it up by the head, or most commonly, we want to run from it. But to be mindful with our shame is to pick it up in a way that risks its bite. It's holding it, allowing its threat, and yet continuing with the work that we are called to do that is mindfully powerful. Think about all the threats that we face in the coaching that we do for people in mindful practice. We're inviting them to acknowledge or identify a sense of threat and yet reframe our experience around it, not that we might run from it or allow it to over-dominate our internal vision, but to carry it, to be curious about it, and continue to be creative with it. The Lord is calling Moses to pick up the snake in a way which risks its bite. And yet, with that same snake, Moses is going to perform the great miracles that will release the people from slavery. This is a part of a bigger journey. John Wimber says, always, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Moses is here encountering his limp. He's getting away from the superhuman Moses who's going to fix everything, and he's being reminded of his vulnerability, of his brokenness, and he's being invited to carry his brokenness into battle. It legitimizes his leadership. In fact, this staff is going to be the one thing he needs in order to show Pharaoh who the boss is. It's going to be the one thing he needs to lean on if the seas are going to part so the people can cross. It's the one thing that he's going to need if he's going to find clean water out of salt and miry water. Brandy Brown says that shame, blame, disrespect, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. And Moses has to risk it. He has to take himself out of exile and risk this overbearing experience of mindful practice here to hold the staff to return to the place where love might flourish again. He has to come out of exile and place himself back into community, community with his brother Aaron, community with the people from whom he was disconnected. He has to become Israelite again. He's been Egyptian, you know, he, he's been Midian, but in order to overcome his shame, he has to become Israelite. He has to wrestle with his true identity. And this enables us to live freely, to love fully, and to lead authentically. This is the call for this mindfulness practice with shame, that we might really encounter ourselves as we are, 
that we might experience ourselves as we are, that we might identify the humiliation that we fear and yet hold it mindfully without it disabling or distorting our daily practice of living. You know, I, I'm, I'm always coaching leaders to lead as they are, as God has called them to be. They, they say things like, yes, but no one would follow me if I did that. Or, yes, but people wouldn't like me if I was like I really am, like my kids see me. I'm like, wow. Or, um, you know, I, I need to be kind of better. I need to be aspirational. That's what I hear quite a lot. You know, I need to offer people aspiration. I'm saying you can still offer them aspiration along, alongside authenticity. No, not with me authentic. I couldn't possibly. No, you, you can't. The Lord called Moses to pick up the snake by the tail, to risk humiliation, to return to the Israelites in order that he might find, again, love growing at its foundation, being fully known, being fully loved. There's always a Christian in the room who will say, oh, but Will, what's the opposite of shame? I mean, you know, we're meant to be kind of, you know, grounded in our failures, aren't we? Uh, sorry, that's slightly... It's meant to say humility. I'm not quite sure it's bobbled out of place. Um, just in case you thought some strange psycho babble going on up here. See, the opposite of shame is not shamelessness. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you'll notice that the the Lord, you know, says people were taken over by their shamelessness. You're not meant to live shame in a shameless way, but the opposite of being shame-bound isn't shamelessness. It's actually being humble. If you go back to the first snake, the snake of shame, in the garden you'll notice that, that Adam and Eve, prior to their fall, were living in not in a state of shamelessness, but in a state of humility. They were naked, it says, yet they were without shame. They were unique in creation, and yet they didn't hunger after likeness with other creatures. They were without shame in their uniqueness. And they were also living in the context of a boundaried experience. They couldn't eat of this particular tree. Their experience was boundaried. So their experience wasn't one of shamelessness, it was one of boundaries, one of uniqueness, and one of nakedness. That's an experience of what humility really means. And so our journey here is not a journey uh, into shamelessness, our journey here is a journey into this place, this mindful place where I might accept these three goals. And these are the mindful challenges I want to lay down for you today. Firstly, that I might accept my limitations without shame, accepting the provision of God and the care of others with humility and thankfulness. Let me just repeat number one to you again. That I might accept my limitations without shame. We talked about acceptance already today. Accepting the provision of God and the care of others with humility and thankfulness. Mindfulness practice number two is this, that I might welcome my aloneness without shame, recognizing my uniqueness whilst living in communion with God and others. And thirdly, that I might be uncovered without shame, living life with all authenticity and vulnerability as a one beloved of God. These are, these are, this is the mindful challenge I want to invite you to in combating shame. Because that Edenic state of healthy shame didn't last that long for Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, we encounter that first snake, and he immediately distorts the three goals. In limitation, he asks, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, limitations or boundaries are undone when we are shame-bound. 
Secondarily, the snake distorts the aloneness and individuality of Adam and Eve. When In verse 4 and 5 it says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Likeness suddenly became something that was appealing. It's why everyone's Facebook profile looks like Justin Bieber rather than just themselves. Because likeness is something to be loved in a broken, shame-bound state. Whereas aloneness or uniqueness is something to be despised. And finally, we see that in verse 7, from breaking God's healthy boundary and eating of the fruit, fully anticipating wisdom and likeness, it says, then their eyes were both opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The first shame-bound experience. The first experience of being separated from God and other. In mindfulness practice, picking up the snake by the tail is welcoming our vulnerability and risking being bitten, holding that risk in our hands whilst we undertake the calling of the king to return to Egypt to set the people free. Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God, and it's my belief that this form of mindfulness practice can help us claim back the promises of God in our lives. Lots of people ask me about my prayer life. I, I practice a very weak prayer life, but I say weak and strong at the same time. Because when I pray every day in front of the mirror, sounds narcissistic, I'm praying to God, not to me. I'm shaving at the time. I'm praying, God, let me fear you today and not man. That's my, that's my, that's my seminal prayer of the day. Because my practice is the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man will keep me away from the bonds of shame where judgment and hostility and humiliation arrive, and into the heart of God, where I know my true identity as a son, and I'm empowered to fulfill the call of my life. It's a simple piece of meditative practice that marks my shaving prayer. My mindful practice of shaving is a period of vulnerability where I acknowledge my humanness through my shaving and the sovereignty of God in my prayer. If not, as a leader, we find ourselves placing ourselves not into an external exile in the desert, but into an internal exile between the off and on stage model of being, the front stage and the backstage model of being. And of course, what I'm not saying here is that as a doctor, you should sort of roll into your clinic on a Monday, you know, wearing a t-shirt and jeans, smelling vaguely of curry and beer, and saying, all right, all right, how's it going? All right, you're not feeling very well. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a bit tired today. I had a really big night last night. I'm just being authentic, just being vulnerable. Just being vulnerable. Sorry about that. Yeah, oh, oh, I've got to look at my notes. I've got to look at my notes. Just check it out. Oh, I better Google this one. Sorry, I haven't heard that one before. You know, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. We're not talking about you losing your professional persona, which you need to counsel behind or you need to teach behind. What we're saying is this is your internal world. This is about you really showing up in the context of your real leadership. Yes, you have to have a professional clothes to wear and a professional demeanor to carry, but you still carry that demeanor. You still wear those clothes, but you wear them as you, not as someone else. Shame-bound leaders look, present, and appear to be transparent and sound connected, but in reality, they aren't emotionally present. They're a closed book, and they feel highly disconnected. How do you feel? Do you feel connected, or do you feel highly disconnected? connected. You know, Jesus went to the cross so that we wouldn't be buried alive with our shame, that we might be risen again with him. But for many of us in leadership, we are buried alive with our shame. 
And we're still saying, hmm, I need to look better. I need to be more professional. I need to convince people with my credibility. Rather than saying, here I am, called by the Lord. I'm going to carry this snake by the tail. I'm going to risk its bite because it's better to live in real time than live my life in exile. It also follows that if we have a false self and a true self, we will develop a mission and a shadow mission. The mission we have is the mission that God has called us to, but the shadow mission is the mission that we develop to support our false selves. Here's a young Anakin Skywalker, and he cast a pretty frightening shadow in the form of Darth Vader. If you're not a Star Wars fan, I invite you to watch the movie and find out. But, you know, I, I, I can preach Christ crucified in Romans 8 to this congregation over here. And I hope I will make you laugh and cry. But most importantly, I hope there's four or five of you who are going to become Christians, probably for the second time in this particular group. But, you know, you're going to, you're going to respond to the appeal. I'm going to preach exactly the same thing over here. The same sermon, the same text, there's going to be the same response. But over here I'm preaching, Will Van der Hart is funny. Same sermon, same content, same response. But here I'm preaching for me. This is my shadow mission. I'm doing this because I'm bound by shame. I'm terrified of being humiliated. I need to prop up my weak self-image by getting your applause. Over here, I'm fulfilling my true mission. This is what God has called me to do. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. No one else can see what's going on. Only me. So we constantly ask ourselves about these intentions with compassion and say, God, I want to step away from my shadow mission. I want to step into my true mission. Because in reality, when you can co-join your true mission with your true self, you are truly powerful. Real supernatural power comes from when your true mission and your true self are co-joined. Because the enemy wants to bind you with shame in order that you fail to fulfill the calling of God on your life. But the mindful practice of the three goals is in order that you might realize your true mission because you've realized your true self. You're no longer saying, oh, I need to come in two hours early to make sure I'm not going to be humiliated in front of everyone by, by not being on the list. You're going to come in on time, saying, here I am, send me. Now, this is the work of real transformation, but it's a work of real risk. Brenning again says that shame cannot survive being spoken. It can't survive empathy. And mindful practice in my experience has been a practice of self-compassion. Lots of Christian leaders have challenged me on this one. They said, oh, I don't really like your whole self-compassion phrase. It's a bit like new age. I'm like, do you know what new age is? No, but it sounds threatening and dangerous, so I've used it anyway. Um, (laughs) Then it's like, well, it sounds kind of self-ingratiating. You know, like it sounds kind of like, you know, you're like massaging your own shoulders. Like, I thought we were called to pick up our cross daily and follow a crucified Savior. So tell me that self-compassion is in the Bible because I can't see it. I'm like, okay, let's forget the word self-compassion. Let's talk about absorbing and receiving into our inner self the real words of Jesus. Imagine that self-compassion is not actually self-compassion at all. It's the compassion of a creator over a created So I'm a created, not the creator. And what I'm going to receive from the Lord is the manual of my working, and I'm going to accept that into my being. Now, I hate it when I have a piece of technology and the advice or the guidance to use that technology is in some booklet that I've thrown away where I unpackaged that particular item. And I, I've done that too many times. I'm a person who opens the packet and starts playing with the toy, throws away the packaging because I want to work out how it works. 
apart from when I can't know how it works because I've thrown away the instruction booklet that I should have read before I unpackaged it. Self-compassion is about having the guidance from the Creator modeled inside the created. It's merely accepting what God has already said over you in order that you can really live according to the Maker's Manual. So practicing self-compassion to me, practicing empathy, is practicing the words of Jesus over my life, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are precious, that you are called for purpose, that He is in you is greater than He is in the world, that you're going to shine like stars in the universe. These are the words of God over us, and practicing compassion, practicing empathy is accepting these words into our inner being. And you can do that in a mindful way. That's the best way of working. Walking it out every day, holding it like the lamp of a virgin. It's a light, but it doesn't distract you from doing the work in the house before the master's return. Ultimately, Christologically, what we see with the snake is this journey from the garden when the snake infects Adam and Eve's first experience and invites them to break those things that make them humble and lead them into a place of being shame-bound. Then the encounter with Moses at the burning bush where God invites Moses to pick up the snake by the tail, risking its bite, but also enabling him to have mastery over the snake in order that he might not be shame-bound anymore to return to Egypt in order to set the people free from captivity, the lost sheep to being the found sheep. Notice that the difference between a shadow mission and a true mission is only five degrees. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years before he could lead the people of Israel, who were the lost sheep for 40 years. So five degrees at source is only a couple of centimeters, but five degrees after 40 years is an awful long way away. Here, God restores Moses' experience of the snake and gives him hope that mastery over the snake is possible. Then we find ourselves in Numbers 21.9. Now Moses has led the people away, but they're still grumbling. And now the snakes are beginning to bite their heels and people are dying And so the Lord invites Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and then anyone who's bitten by the snake looks up at the brass snake, then they live. Now, the theology here is not that the bronze snake was important, but through the bronze snake, you might look up and see where your help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. So the Lord is inviting the people not to look down at the ground anymore, not to look at their pain on pity, but look up at Him to see their problem and to see their Savior. And then we find ourselves, amazingly, in John 3.14. And it says there, as Moses lifted up the snake on a pole in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, the journey of the snake of shame in Scripture doesn't just begin in Genesis and find some outworking in Exodus. It finds a conclusion, and the conclusion it finds is on the cross at Calvary, where Jesus becomes the snake. Can you not see this incredible metaphor being revealed to the Israelites? the snake of shame. Christ has become the snake in order that we might become His righteousness. Derek Prince summarizes the ten exchanges that resulted when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, He says this, Jesus was punished for our sins that we've committed that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded for the sins that we've committed that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we may made right with His righteousness. Jesus died our death that we might share His life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus endured our spiritual poverty that we might share His abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share His glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have His acceptance with the Father. Jesus was cut off by death that we might be joined to God eternally in life. Our old self 
was put to death in him that the new man or woman might come alive in us. Jesus bore our shame that we might become his glory. He literally became the snake on the pole. And through that, we are released from the curse of the snake. My invitation to you, I guess, as in closing today, is to pick up the snake. Pick it up by the tail and let it risk in your life humiliation, the risk of exposure, the risk of being you. But notice how when you pick it up, it becomes a staff, the thing that you need to protect you, to lead the people, to fulfill your destiny. You see, shame doesn't need to ruin your life anymore. Shame can be the gateway through which you fulfill the mission to which God has already called you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.